Hello and welcome to another episode of Winning Healthcare Food Fights. I hope you join me each week as we take a deep dive into health and wellness topics, which are impossible to do on big media. My guests bring more clarity and understanding without the mess. On this episode, we're going to explore the current opioid crisis. My guest graduated from Virginia Tech in 1992, earned her Master of Public Health from Johns Hopkins University in 1999, and her MD from Eastern Virginia Medical School in 2003. She is the owner of Bluegrass Family Wellness, a direct primary care clinic in Crestwood, Kentucky, and board certified in family medicine and addiction medicine. Welcome to the show and Happy New Year, Dr. Molly Rutherford. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year. Thank you. Well, I'm very honored and, and happy to have you joining me on the show. In fact, well before I started, I was hoping to have you on because of your DPC, direct primary care practice, and your addiction recovery practice. And that's quite unique and a powerful combination, in my opinion. So let me ask you, how did you, how and why did Bluegrass Family Wellness come to be? Well, it started in 2014, and actually we opened our doors in 2015, and it, it came about after, I guess, about almost eight years in practice in, in the system, so uh, working for a, a traditional primary care practice that built insurance. And then during that time, I also became um, specialized in addiction medicine and really enjoyed that work. Um, one of the things that I enjoyed about addiction medicine was that it was, it was completely insurance free at the time in Kentucky, substance abuse treatment or substance use disorder treatment was not something that was covered by any insurance plan. So that was very refreshing to me. And when I learned about direct primary care, I decided I was just going to open my own direct primary care practice. And then eventually, after trying to build insurance for addiction um, and, and it just didn't work out, we um, now we have the purely direct pay addiction treatment as well. So it's all in the same, in the same place and patients are treated exactly the same, whether they're coming in for recovery or if they're coming in for primary care and many of them will will come in for both you know they, they, many of them pay for both you're on the front lines dealing with some deeply personal battles and i think any good general knows if you want reality go to the front and listen to the troops and the same goes for business leaders and you'd hope politicians would do the same thing i'm paying a lot more attention to this issue and and i and I suspect it's, it's, mo it's like most big problems. It's a series of smaller ones jumbled into one big one. So I'm gathering it's a lot more complex than I'm thinking even right now. And I suspect most people are in the, the same boat. So to start with, what are the most important basics to know about the current quote-unquote opioid crisis? Well, I think... One thing uh, that I would like everyone to know is that I, I, I really don't like to refer to it as the opioid crisis because really what we have is an addiction crisis. Um, the, the opioids have made our addiction crisis more um, urgent 
or emergent, I guess, as because people die from overdoses of opioids much easier than they do from other kinds of medications or drugs. But but really, what will like what could happen, and what I'm already seeing, is that um, people get stable in their recovery from opioids, but they they tend to use other substances. Um, or they tend to still have addictive behaviors, whether it be gambling or, you know, addiction to the internet, addiction to social media. So I think that's one, one of the messages that I like to get across. And then the other is we, we continue to focus on pills. We continue to focus on uh, the pain pills in all of this. And at this point, at least in Kentucky, and it seems to be moving west, it's really the heroin and fentanyl that are causing the overdose deaths at this point. So uh, it, it frustrates me when I continue to read news articles about, you know, Joey who got a prescription for hydrocodone when he had his wisdom teeth out and became addicted because that's, that is not the norm. That's not how most people um, became addicted to opioids. So in your, in your practice, you're doing, it's addiction recovery, but it sounds like you're covering or you're addressing more than just what people might think is pain pills or even uh, illicit drugs, uh, addiction to uh, substance abuse. So you're, are you doing more than that? Well, we, I do, I, I, I prescribe, I mean, I basically prescribe medication to help people with opioid addiction. But mm -hmm. along with that, I see people who struggle with other drugs. I also treat people who have alcoholism. And that's, that's nothing new. That was, the, we've always done that in primary care. So addiction is something that primary care physicians have always dealt with, whether it be nicotine or alcohol, food. I think um, sugar addiction and food addiction is absolutely to blame for, um, you know, our obesity epidemic. And so, yeah, it's, it's complicated. But the, the, the reason we use buprenorphine, for example, which is also called Suboxone, the brand name it was Suboxone originally. Now there are several brand names for buprenorphine. We use that medication because it saves lives. So, so basically, if you take if you take a hundred people and you who are addicted to heroin, for example, and you treat half of them with um, with buprenorphine maintenance therapy, and the other half you just put them through a, you know NA or twelve step program or rehab. The, the people on the medication are about half as likely to die from their disease. So that's the reason we use a medication in that case. Not, not to say that we don't use medications for other diseases. We do. We use or for other substances or other types of addiction because we do. With alcohol, for example, we've used um, antabuse in the past. Naltrexone is another medication that works really well for alcohol addiction and then we have varenicline which is um the brand name is chantix for for cigarettes for nicotine addiction so 
the the use of medications to treat addiction is not not necessarily a new thing. Um, buprenorphine is different because it's highly regulated, so you have to have a special license to be able to prescribe it. And then the first year that you prescribe it, you can only prescribe to 30 patients, and then the, uh, you have to apply the following year to be able to increase the number of patients that that a physician can treat. So has that changed? Where you used to be able to do. Uh, getting that drug and then be able to prescribe it and now they've clamped down on it or has it always been that way? No, it's always been that way. It's, it, it was, it came out in the United States in 2000 and they passed a, um, some legislation called data 2000 and it, um, it requires physicians and to, to get what's called an X number. So we have our DEA number, our regular DEA number that allows us to prescribe Percocet or fentanyl or Valium. And then we have our special DEA number that's an X number that allows us to prescribe buprenorphine or buprenorphine naloxone. So that has always been the case. They've uh, amended, I think they, as it might've been part of CARA. I can't remember. There've been so many opioid bills over the last few years, but with one of them, they passed, um, they, they now allow physicians assistants and nurse practitioners to become certified to, they're just trying to increase the access to this medication because it's so, it's so life-saving. And then they also allowed for anyone who has an addiction specialty to go up to 275 patients, I believe, total. So they've, they've increased the limit on the number of patients that we are permitted to treat. And, um, you know, it's all kind of ridiculous if you think about it because if, you, if we can – if we can prescribe as much fentanyl as we want to, then there probably shouldn't be a limit on buprenorphine. But anyway, that's, that's just where we are. And, um, yeah, so, so basically, you know, the people come in, they've, there are many paths to how they got started on opioids. Some of them started with a prescription for pain pills that does, that has happened usually that person was not naive to any drugs like they had already experimented with alcohol or they were already smokers or you know they already experimented with marijuana and and then there are people who come in who just used grandma's pain pills recreationally and then ended up becoming addicted and then now it's if i'm seeing mostly people who are coming in addicted to heroin and they're not, they're not using pain pills anymore. Um, just cause they're not, pain pills are very hard to find nowadays and they can be very expensive compared to heroin. So, um, yeah, so there's, there's many different situations and there's really no, uh, stereotype that anybody really fits. Um, many people have jobs, some people don't, you know, some people have kind of wrecked their life and had trouble with the, with the criminal justice system as a result. And some are even referred by drug courts. And so, um, and, and then they all have their other medical problems. So most, a lot of, most of my patients will eventually sign up to, to be, for me to be their primary care doctor as well. You recommended I read Dreamland by Sam Quinones, which is a real eye-opener. Uh, and it's a great book. I've already told some friends about it. And I, I'm wondering, why did you recommend I read Dreamland in particular? I think it tells, uh, it tells what transpired 
um, pretty well. You know, I think it tell it it tells the story and includes all of the different players as to why we ended up with the the crisis that we're in now. I think the one thing that he doesn't really touch on that another um, author does touch on in a different book, his name is Dave Chase, and he wrote a book about the opioid epidemic. I'm blanking on the name of it. But um, the one thing that Sam doesn't really touch on is the, is the dysfunction of the healthcare system. So he, he talks about the you know the pharmaceutical industry and i think he mentions it's been a while since i've read it but i think he mentions when we they i you know the government the hospitals decided to call pain the fifth vital sign and there was this big push for mm -hmm. for physicians to be more compassionate and treat pain um so that that happened and that, that all of that happened when I was coming through training and we were not only told by from pharmaceutical representatives, by the way, that I mean, it wasn't just Oxycontin reps that were telling us that there was no need to fear opioids, that it was very rare that people would become addicted to them. But our teachers, you know, our, our professors were telling us the same thing. And so and then there was there was there were several external pressures for doctors to prescribe pain medicines. There are, um, but the one thing that doesn't get mentioned in Dreamland, which which I think, in my opinion, is the biggest factor here, is that the way the healthcare system has deteriorated um, has led to really overprescribing of everything. So the the typical you know the typical patient doctor relationship that existed long ago no longer exists the patient is in the room for you know well I, sometimes they wait in the room by themselves for a while but um the encounter itself between the physician and the patient is very short and so there's not a lot of time to really tease out what is going on there's no time to say oh hey you look like you're about to de develop diabetes your a1c is 5.8 Let's talk about you know some some lifestyle changes that maybe you could do to reverse this. And so that it, it, our our system is very geared towards doctors getting out their prescription pad and writing a prescription for something to address whatever the patient came in for. And so it, it, of course, yes, that it, that happened with pain as well. And pain is a really common complaint in primary care. And um, you know, when I started back pain, it was just like every patient came in with back pain. Well, I didn't have time to sit and talk to the patient about doing some exercises to strengthen their core, um, to talk about maybe losing some weight, um, you know, all kinds of lifestyle changes that can help with chronic back pain. And it just many, many doctors were just as a result. Um, trying to be compassionate, believing that their patients were coming in truly in pain, starting them on these medications, maybe often giving them too many pills. I think, you know, surgeons probably gave their post-op patients too many pills when they left um, the hospital. But the thinking of the surgeon was not, oh, I'm going to, if I give this patient too many pills, they're going to end up addicted they're thinking I'm going to make sure they have enough just in case so that they're not calling my office mm. later, you know? Mm. Um, and so it's just the, the, the 
the system has really kind of deteriorated that that relationship between the patient and the physician. And, uh, you know, we don't have enough time, primary care doctors don't have enough time to sit and ask, okay, do you have a problem with alcohol? How much do you drink? Do you smoke? Does addiction run in your family? All of these questions that are really necessary to, to determine if somebody's going to be a high risk for a medication like an opioid or even a benzo. You know, there's many medications that are potentially addictive. I remember Sam, and that's why it triggered my dreamland, triggered the thought. Sam wrote about uh, initially doctors who were warned uh, about patients with a history of drug abuse and prescribing opioids, and they were told to spend a lot of time to get to know their patients and their medical history along with family history. And there's that word again, time. Mm -hmm. So I, I can, you just, you just reconfirmed something that was in the book and that I've heard so often from primary care doctors that are not in direct primary care. They don't have the time. And that lack of a good doctor-patient relationship, and it, it just it's just a killer, yeah. and in more ways than one. And I'll, I'll go a step further, and based on what I've heard and what I've read, without DPC at the minimum, uh, and ideally primary care docs, this isn't going to be resolved anytime soon. And I'm curious, I mean, that's my opinion, uh, changed my mind, but <laughs> I'm thinking primary care docs, when they come out of medical school, how are they with uh, addiction recovery? Can, can they handle a certain amount? Or is, when do they call in someone like you, <laughs> superwoman? <laughs> right. Well, I think their most residencies are requiring that... Um, it's gotten better, in other words. When I when I trained, we had I think one lecture on addiction, um, and it was it was very much about alcoholism. I remember it was good, it was impactful, but we didn't even talk about methadone for opioid use disorder. We didn't talk about buprenorphine. So the the training was very minimal in medical school. And then when I got to residency, and I was an intern. As an intern, we spend most of our time in the hospital. We do some clinic, but we do mostly hospital work. And um, we, we saw addiction all the time. We saw people coming in mainly with, um, with medical consequences of addiction. So coming in with pancreatitis, a flare of pancreatitis due to continuing to drink alcohol. Um, I had a patient who had, had, who had heart failure because she abused or she, you know, she was addicted to, to crack cocaine and was unable to quit. So I, I remember being frustrated as an intern, as a resident, just not really knowing how to help all of these patients who were clearly didn't want to, you know, they didn't want to be sick. They didn't want to be coming back to the hospital every week with chronic pancreatitis. But, you know, the feature of addiction is that pe people know that deep down people know it's bad for them, but they can't stop using it. They can't stop. And um, it's especially hard with opioids because not only do you have that, just that craving and that addiction already, but the physical withdrawal symptoms are severe. And so, you know, even, even when somebody says, I've had it, I'm not gonna live my life like this, they, 
are sick for days, so sick, like the worst flu of your life. And, you know, that's a really difficult thing to get through. And um, buprenorphine and methadone help with that because it's, they are opioids. So they, they essentially get rid of the withdrawal symptoms. And then once people are maintained on them, then they don't have any cravings to use um, heroin or, or pain pills. So, yeah, I mean, we definitely, I don't, I don't think, at least when I graduated, we were not, we were not very prepared. I know that residency programs are now trying to expose the residents to addiction treatment. I've had some residents rotate with me. I know that in Louisville, they go to uh, the Moore Center, which, which is one of the opioid treatment programs, which, which is a meth, basically a methadone clinic. They are very highly regulated. You can't, you know, it's not like a primary care physician can just decide to treat addiction with methadone. Um, we can prescribe methadone for pain, <laughs> but we can't, um, we can't just prescribe methadone out of our practice, but we, the, we can buprenorphine and actually, you know, I prefer buprenorphine. I've worked in a methadone clinic and you know, nothing against it. It helps many, many people, but I just feel like it, um, when people are able to be responsible with their medication and take it home, I think that buprenorphine is a better option. Oh. Hmm. So people, I know people are complaining about, I see this on online quite a bit and pain patients are complaining about their doctors no longer prescribing pain meds and they're, they're upset understandably. Uh, and in some cases it's not ending well. So what, what's, is it the government driving that and, and are docs afraid of something yeah. bigger? What's, yes. what's going on yes, there? Yes, it's the government. Um, well, here's, here's, an interesting, here's an interesting thing. I'm not sure if you knew this, but I was part of this task force, this uh, HHS pain management interagency best practices task force. It, it met from, we met from May of two, 2018 to May of 2019. And um, Dr. Vanila Singh, she was our chairperson of, you know, she chaired the, the task force and did a wonderful job. She's a, she's a pain specialist and anesthesiologist slash pain specialist. And we had people from mostly pain specialists. We had a pain psychologist on the task force. And then I was, I was really the, the one of the two or three primary care representatives on the task force. So, um, and I was the only direct primary care uh, doctor on the task force. So when I went into that, or when they asked me to be on the task force, I thought, well, this is weird. They must think I'm a pain specialist when I'm really not. I'm an addiction specialist. And just the more that I read about the, the charge of the task force, I thought, well, there must be some reason. You know, I, I kind of pray about things. And I thought, well, there must be some reason that I'm being asked to do this. So I ended up going. And um, prior to that, I was very anti-prescription opioids. So I thought, you know, I, I would say I was really biased against prescribing opioids for anybody with chronic pain and then trying to avoid it as much as possible in acute pain. And then after I went to the first meeting, you know, I really had kind of an awakening because of all of the chronic pain patients that came to DC to talk to the task force. And so it became clear to me that 
you know, we were swinging the pendulum the other way too far and that there really were people, many, many people who have benefited from being on chronic opioids. And so that, I think that was a really good experience for me personally, but also, you know, it really reminded me how legislation can, can make things, can have severe unintended consequences. Yeah, the, okay. um, in Kentucky, and I think it was 2011, this was, and we had a bad pain pill problem in Kentucky. There is no denying it. And, and, and in my opinion, there's no denying that overprescribing played a role in that. Because if you look at the curve of the number of prescriptions for OxyContin, for example, and a lot, of, you know, I'm sure you've seen on 60 Minutes the um, just the millions of pills that were going into Appalachia, into Eastern Kentucky and West Virginia, and the some of the populations of these towns where all these pills were going are were tiny. So you know there was drug dealing going on. There were there were criminal enterprises uh, just capitalizing on this whole situation of how how addictive um, opioids can be. So th that happened. I, I don't deny that um, that physicians overprescribed and that as a result, I think more people got addicted to opioids than probably would have. Um, and, you know, some of that is, I think, being in Appalachia, they're not really on the, they're not really on the heroin in, in Norfolk, for example, where I trained, there was, there was heroin, crack, all of the drugs that come in through the port or however they come up the eastern shore, you know, the eastern seaboard, were all very readily available. But I think prior to pain pills, and Sam covered some of this in his book, there weren't, it was most, that was it as far as opioids went. Pain pills were in Appalachia. Um, Ohio, Kentucky, and then when all these states like Ohio and Kentucky passed these laws to limit prescribing and really kind of scared doctors basically from prescribing opioids, the the pain pill pipeline or the, and then also Florida, Florida was huge in all of this. The pain pills dried up. And I've, I mean, I've had patients tell me this. I was using Opanas, and then all of a sudden you couldn't get Opanas, and then they reformulated the OxyContin, and you couldn't abuse it very readily. So I just, you know, a heroin becomes available. The same dealer that people got their OxyContin from or their Opana from now has heroin. And so if somebody's suffering with flu symptoms and having really strong cravings for the pain pills they were using, then it's they're just all they're going to use it so um that's kind of how oh, heroin came in yeah and um and so now that's pretty much that's most of what we have here we do there is uh, a market for buprenorphine there's a market for suboxone as well because there's a shortage of treatment for people it's it's even though the government has tried to expand that they haven't done enough or doctors have been scared off probably from even treating addiction just um, for many reasons, mainly, okay, you want me to take on one more thing? I've already had to 
spend all this money on this electronic medical record and I had to sell my practice because I can't deal with all this administrative burden. Now you're telling me you want me to treat addiction. <laughs> you know, there's many reasons why I think there's still a shortage of, of treatment. And so of course it's going to be sold. Some people are just treating themselves on the street, basically, you know, most of the time they're doing it wrong, but wow. buying buprenorphine pills and taking them because they don't want to use heroin anymore. So, you know, in my, that's a good thing. Are they lacking access to care? Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. That, <laughs> funny how that works. Mm -hmm. So I did a little number crunching. If memory serves, we lose a, a little over $700 billion a year on, on addiction-related issues in our population. And when I did the math, actually using your direct primary care and addiction recovery prices, uh, so it's I took an average of $225 a month. Mm -hmm. It worked out to about, and, and this is 21 million Americans right. that have at least one addiction, as I understand it. it. It worked out to about $56 billion, $57 billion. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a lot of money. I get that. But considering you know, what this costs. Uh, I mean, the, the real cost is so right. much more. Oh, for every, I mean, for every dollar we spend on treating addiction, we save $12. I mean, we, we know, or, you know, this is some health economist figured that out, but it makes sense because if you think about the criminal justice system and everything, all of the downstream consequences of addiction, it's very expensive. Yeah. I've lived outside the United States for about 15 years now. So how do we refer to that population? Is there a word that an updated work is when I was, you know, 15 or so or in my 20s, I mean, they were addicts. Mm -hmm. I mean, we just, we, we had one lump word. They were addicts. But has that changed? I mean, what, is it, has it gotten a little more, uh, I, I don't, a, a little more uh, empathetic. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I we're, I mean, yes, we're trying. The, the American Society of Addiction Medicine and several other organizations, federal and also just some nonprofits are trying to spread the word that we want to change our language. And I think that's true for other diseases as well. Alcoholic is probably not a very kind way to refer to someone or diabetic yeah. because it, it implies that they are their disease, right? So, um, I mean, I will right. say that many of my patients refer to themselves as addicts. They just do. Um, but, and you know, right. It's cultural. But so we try to call the people up a person with a substance use disorder is probably the most compassionate mm -hmm. way to say it, I guess. Um, a person who uses drugs. Yeah. It's, you know, I try to make people feel just like people when they come in. And because we all have something sure. that we're dealing with, something that's a thorn in our side, you know, nobody's perfect. So, yeah. um, and I, and I explain to, to my patients who they experience their own shame around their addiction is that, you know, what, what they go through day to day, trying not to use is not that different from someone who struggles with food addiction and, you know, can't avoid eating donuts if they're in the room with donuts. It's the same part of the brain involved in all of that. But 
they, unfortunately, people mm. who use illegal drugs get judged more harshly, even then they get judged more harshly than someone who smokes cigarettes or someone who uses alcohol because those things are legal. And, you know, yeah, I, here's, here's a, here, here's a question that, that came up with a friend of mine. We were having a conversation and I was relating to him a story about the culture of where I grew up. And I, it was a, on the North shore of Chicago is, is the, the posh section of town, if you will. And so all of our parents were essentially high achievers and that there was a cultural influence and I'm going back to the mid seventies and our substance abuse, if you will, was beer and pot, but it, there was a cultural line that we didn't cross. And that was anything harder than that. And you were, you know, you were a druggie. Oh no, 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 no. And we kind of looked out for one another. In fact, a guy I knew, his name was Jeff Nielsen, who sadly passed away. He wasn't a best friend, but we grew up knowing each other and went to the same church, and we got along. And at a party, someone gave me a beer, and, and there were older people around in their 20s or so. And someone just handed me a beer, and I don't think I even rem I don't remember who it was. And before I could drink it, Jeff took the beer out of my hand and told me not to drink it. It had been spiked with a hard drug, and he poured it down the drain. I always think of that when, when Jeff pops into my head and I look up with a smile and say a silent thanks. But we kind of looked out for one another. It was a cultural thing. But that was back when, you know, the worst you were going to get is, you know, something, the Colombian gold. And it wasn't, I don't think, it's not as powerful as what they have now. So, but that was kind of, pot was sort of the gateway drug back then. And the cure, what I'm curious about, is it still, quote unquote, a gateway drug or is it still that? And are there more now? And the other thing that I've heard is there are much faster paths to addiction with, with newer drugs. So we'll start with the gateway drug. Is, it, is pot still the gateway drug or is it, am I, am I completely, <laughs> I'll be 60 on Monday, so forgive me. <laughs> well, that's a, that, well, that's a, that is a very, um, oh, you have a birthday coming up. Happy birthday. Um, Thank Monday. you, Monday, 6-0. Okay. All right, awesome. <laughs> Boomer. <laughs> um, so the gateway, that's a, that, that argument goes back and forth. I, I can give you my opinion. I think the data leans toward marijuana being a gateway drug in that most people try it before they try other harder things. However, I think we focus too much on marijuana because the reality is most people, the first thing they try is nicotine. And so, you know, mm. I think maybe we, we hyper-focus on marijuana as a gateway drug when it's not the only one. Alcohol and nicotine are also gateway drugs. They're just legal, you know? So people don't really think of them as drugs uh, as, like they do marijuana. So I would say, yes, in my experience, just seeing patients and hearing their stories of how they started uh, down their path to opioid addiction, they usually used marijuana first, you know? So mm -hmm. um, in my opinion, yes. Are there people who just go straight to pills? Probably, but I would say that that's 
unusual. Um, but you did touch on something, you know, I'm, my generation is not too far behind yours. Um, mine's Gen X and we, same thing. In, in La I grew up in Loudoun County, Virginia, and we mostly drank. Um, some people smoked marijuana occasionally, but yes, again, there was, there was a certain group of people who did the harder drugs and, you know, they were kind of ostracized, not ostracized, but yeah, I, I think we probably talked, referred to them as druggies. Um, yeah. So I, I, I relate to that. I think the difference between this generation that has struggled with the opioids is that they were exposed much more than we were. And, you know, Percocet and hydrocodone were around when we were younger. So what happened, what happened in the 90s where all of a sudden so many more people were exposed to opioids? And what happened was we overprescribed in, in the healthcare field. And let, we did that. We've gone over this. We did that because that's what we were taught to do. And we, and we did that because of fear of, not treating someone adequately for their pain and getting sued for that. We did that because we didn't have enough time to spend with the patient to determine what really was going on. Um, and, and a lot of doctors did it out of ignorance because we just didn't know. We didn't know that the person in front of us was, was, was actually addicted to this medicine and was going to, you know, five other doctors and getting the medicine. So um, when the, prescription monitoring programs came out. Um, we didn't have one in Virginia when I moved out here to Kentucky. So I, w I didn't have a way to check to see if one of my patients was going to other doctors to get pain pills. And when I moved to Kentucky, I thought it was the greatest thing ever because I, I would know, you know, before the patient even came to see me if they had been to five other doctors and gotten a prescription for hydrocodone. And so that, that was one of the Mm -hmm. easiest ways to diagnose addiction early on. And um, now it's not though, because like I said, you know, pills aren't really the, the problem anymore. What should parents be worried about in a nutshell? Oh, yeah. Um, what should they be looking for? Well, now the vaping is, is an issue and not, and not because not legal, not vaping nicotine products that are legally sold and that are uh, go through the process of whatever they go through before they're sold. It's it's the the marijuana vaping. You don't know what's in that. Uh, um, they can put other drugs in there. Hmm. So I think that for me as a parent, I have a fourteen year old. That's the, I worry about that the most because it's been, it's become so normalized. You know, vaping is so normalized among teenagers and preteens now that that's most likely what they're going to do. That's what they're going to try. You know, they're not, they're probably not going to try cigarettes because they're harder to get, you know? Yeah. It's now become a delivery vehicle for something other than what it was intended exactly. for. That's my exactly. perception. And, and so, you know, I, I've already told my kids they're going to have to learn how to pee in a cup, but. Well, you know, Hey, that's what's, that's, it's called being a parent, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> I mean, funny how that works. And, and, and I would like to 
offer something my mother did that prevented me from becoming addicted to cigarettes. And I didn't know about what she did until I was about 21 or 22. And I'll share it with you so you can share it with your patients. But I don't want the world to know <laughs> because if the kids find out, then you lose, you lose right. the effectiveness. But humor aside, you know, it seems like families are the last to know. And mental, il mental illness is one example. If you're too close to it, you just you don't notice it because you you see them every day and so the importance of having the relationship that you have as a direct primary care doctor with the time and the relationship that seems critical in this i mean change my mind <laughs> yeah i i won't change your mind cuz i i don't think I could do it. And in fact, I recently was invited to give a talk about incorporating addiction treatment into primary care from a, resin a local residency program. And I wrote back and I said, are you sure you want me to talk? Because I really don't think it can be done in traditional practice. And, you know, I own a direct primary care practice. So I don't know if they, you know, if they still want me to speak. But um, yeah, I just don't think... I don't think it can be done well and let, you know, maybe if you have the resources to bring in counselors and, but then the doctor's not doing anything but writing a prescription in that scenario. You know, they're, they're basically, that to me, that's not practicing medicine. I, I'm sorry, but I value yeah. the relationship. I hear you. I did want to touch on a couple of important things and I don't, I'm not trying to assign blame here, but focus on solutions. So if you could, who would you sit down and have a conversation about solutions and then getting them done? Wave a magic wand. Who do you think you'd want to address if you could? Well, whoever is in charge of um, educating physicians is one. And then whoever could so I guess whoever runs the AAMC, that would be one person I would want to speak to. And then I do think getting the ear of the politicians, the president and the politicians is extremely important, unfortunately, because I've learned the hard way that the decisions that they make affect, have negative consequences. So, you know, they're, if they're, they've, in Kentucky, for example, so many families coming in complaining, doctors are overprescribing. My child got addicted to pain pills because he kept prescribing these pills to him. And then very quickly, doctors became the bad guy in Kentucky. So then all of a sudden, Kentucky's passing laws squeezing opioid prescriptions. And then the drug dealers win because heroin comes in. So, And next thing you know, the overdose death is increasing. So... Whoever the most influential politician is, <laughs> and it probably Mitch McConnell. It's probably, it's probably my senator, actually. Um, it's probably Senator. Well, I'm. I'm, <laughs> I'm also thinking that uh, your fellow DPC physician, Dr. Lee Gross of uh, Epiphany Health in right. gosh let me see if i can uh north port uh, north port mm -hmm. florida he was standing next to president trump at the hospital pricing transparency executive order announcements small oh, world not a bad connection right
maybe he should suggest to, you know, the president to give Dr. Molly a call, <laughs> um, as any um, good general yeah. would. Um, yeah. I'm just saying. Um, we'll copy him, CC on that, and uh, but you know it could be worth an evil. But you know what? He's just the type. He's just the type. Having been in business, he knows if you want to find out what's going on in the real world, go talk to your That's people. True. Go talk to the people that work with you. And he used to do that, like any good business person will. And it's called. It used to be called management by wandering around, and you learn so much. So. What better, what better person to talk to than someone like you who's actually dealing with not only patients in a good place where the solution really needs to be, and this is me pontificating a little bit and really encouraging the, the conversation where we need to go. It makes perfect sense that direct primary care is a, is a no-brainer. And then that's a, that's a great platform to start with for healthcare, period. Right. And then for these patients for the substance abuse and others boy this is this is a magic combination it isn't perfect i get that nothing right. is but if you're going to give the best care you can and for frankly not a lot of money this is a no-brainer mm -hmm. i mean i i you know someone changed my mind i don't think yeah. they're going to but so what what can listeners do? Is there a good place for them to learn which, which bills are worthy of support or to voice their opinion? Is there, and we'll put this in the show notes along with books and, you know, other links. So it'll be there. I think they, they, they need to, what listeners can do is be as libertarian as possible and know that any bill that they want their representatives to support is likely going to get completely changed, first of all, through the process. And second is going to have cons unintended consequences. So I, you know, I'm politically, le I lean more libertarian. So I, I don't think that, I don't always think legislation is the solution. I think education is the solution. So yeah. if they want to get involved locally, you know, trying to build a coalition. We have a coalition here in Oldham County um, called the Healthy Oldham County Coalition, and we have a drug-free communities grant. So there are many people in our community who are passionate about preventing addiction and preventing our kids from using substances. So that's how we have an impact. And I think that that is a lot more successful than going and you know lobbying for some piece of legislation, whether it be at the state level or at the federal level. Yeah, in my book, which I just got the final sign off from uh, one of my mentors, he signed off on his the, the mention I put in there. And one of the things that concerns me is is privacy, and it's a recurring theme with me that we're losing that. And it's not a good thing. And I would suspect that your patients don't exactly want to see their names out on the internet oh, either. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That would be that would be a really bad thing, wouldn't mm -hmm. it? I mean, especially oh, yeah. for them, if they're making a valiant effort to try and overcome this because it's it's brutal. It's got to be brutal. I can't imagine mm -hmm. it. But what you do became public, you know, with your patients. My goodness, I, I, I can't imagine what, what kind of impact that would have. And that's something, as I wrote the privacy section, I, be, I became more libertarian 
over a few months. Mm-hmm. Not that I was, you know, way left or anything, but I've, I've gotten to the point where, oh no, we, this is real simple. Get out of healthcare. Yes. Get out <laughs> get, of the way. <laughs> if you're, if you're, if you're a politician, if you're really smart and I'll send you the updated, I'll send you the updated mm-hmm. book. Um, I have a section in there of my suggestion for politicians getting out of, uh, getting out of healthcare. But in any proposed plan, the first thing I look for is primary care and DPC. And as an addiction recovery expert, is there anything that you look for in proposed solutions for the addiction, the addiction crisis? Because I've learned something, and thank you for that, and that is it ain't just opioids. There's a whole plethora of, of things out there that people are addicted to. So are there any benchmarks? I mean, I stand by, I, I said this in front of the pain management uh, task force and, and, and people thought I was a unicorn because I am a direct primary care doctor and I don't deal with insurance, but I don't think we're going to solve this until we fix our healthcare system. I just don't. Um, you know, I think, I think we're throwing money at it and we're putting a bandaid on it. And, you know, maybe opioids will eventually go out of favor and phase and fizzle out, but there's going to be some other drug that comes in right behind it and replaces it, you know. So until, until we just do a better job of allowing physicians to do what we are trained to do, which is to help people be healthy, um, you know, we're, this problem of addiction is not going to go away. And then communities need to take care. Of, we, our yeah. our communities need to take care of each other too. Families and communities. It's government is not going to solve any of this, in my opinion. And, and like I said, I'm very libertarian. I, I mean, I'll just tell you that I used to be very liberal, and I and I actually at one time thought we should have a single payer healthcare system, and that was many many years ago before I went to med school. And so you know, sometimes just living and life experiences and reality changes one's mind. (laughs) Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So, so for those living near Crestwood, Kentucky, you can learn more about Dr. Molly's care at bluegrassfamilywellness.com. And we're going to have more information on our website with links to the things that we've referenced here and be sure to check out the, the show snack bar YouTube channel with clips from the shows and you can head on over to winhff.com. That's winhff.com and there are more resources there. Dr. Molly Rutherford, you really helped us understand a lot more about not just the opioid crisis, but addiction and the deeper issues there. And, and especially you've, you've changed the, the narrative, I think a little bit in my mind, And that is, it isn't just about opioids. It really is focus on addiction. Mm -hmm. So thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it. And thank you all for listening. Happy New Year and Happy New Decade. If you're interested in how I became allergic to smoking through the efforts of my mother when I was about five years old, please do go to our website, which is linked in the description. Sign up for the newsletter and we'll send it out to you. And there you are.